While superheroes might have come to dominate the cultural consciousness for decades, American cartoonists have been tickling, teasing and testing audiences with tales from the margins. From Robert Crumb to Johnny Ryan, their puerile dispatches from the edge of counterculture have offered a more honest insight into the truth of the American experience than you get from their high-budget Marvel counterparts. I'm Augusta Machilari, and for this edition of the Monocle Weekly, I caught up with legendary cartoonist Peter Bagg. With a career in cartooning stretching back over four decades, Peter Bagg has long been a cornerstone of the US comics scene. In his early series, Neat Stuff, he introduced the dysfunctional all-American Bradley family. In 1990, Neat Stuff morphed into Hate, one of the most popular alternative comics of the decade. It followed the trials and tribulations of the Bradley's eldest son, Buddy, resonating with an audience of Gen X slackers around the world. With the complete hate being republished in a very smart three-volume box set by Fantagraphics this month, I caught up with Peter to learn more about how his relationship with cartooning and cartooning itself has changed over the years. I began, however, by asking him to introduce the Bradley family. The Bradleys were something I started almost 40 years ago. It basically was... uh... A cross between like a sitcom family, like the Brady Bunch, combined with my family, like an actual drunken, dysfunctional family. And I just kept playing with them and always had a lot of ideas for them simply because they were based on, well, not just on my family, but on most families that I knew. This one character, he started as a teenager, this one character, Buddy Bradley, he was always more than any other character based on myself. So it wasn't surprising that I wound up having more and more ideas for him. And after a while, I especially noticed that his life more or less paralleled my life with a 10-year gap. Around 1990, uh, I decided to give him his own comic book. I named the comic book Hate, like a crazy person. So that was about 1990 and uh, still is the most popular comic book I've ever done. It lasted all through the 1990s and pretty much just followed the foibles of this one character and his 20-something friends. It's a remarkable kind of artifact looking at it now, putting it all together. Obviously, just before we started talking, I mentioned that it, it seems to have a lot of parallels with the situation in the present day. But more than that, it's a kind of it's an artifact of a very particular type of slacker culture. Richard Linklater's film Slacker, the kind of dazed and confused, a listlessness. And I wondered what it was about it at the time that felt compelling enough to you to narrativize it in a comic. Well, interestingly, the time I started doing this comic book, Hate, None of that was foremost on my mind. I had no idea that this was something that was going to represent a time and an attitude. Really, all I was doing was thinking of myself 10 years earlier. By then, I was like in my early 30s. I was finally making a decent living, was married with a kid, owned a house. I was comfortably entering middle age, and that made my youth seem very much a part of a past, and I was able to encapsulate it all in my head. I was suddenly, because it was so much a part of my past by that point, I could think of it as story ideas. I was detached from it, more or less. I was able to laugh at things I was going through at the time, when at the time, it wasn't funny at all. So really, for me, it was just nostalgia. It was just me recounting things I had gone through. 
And of course, I, what I was going through, what I was, when I went through all that stuff, it was the late 70s, early 80s, except that I made it in real time. I didn't make Buddy Bradley doing what he was doing in, even though I was doing the comic in 1990, I didn't put him in 1980. I kept him in 1990. I didn't want to get too complicated. But lo and behold, it all seemed to come to represent what was happening at the time. Uh, it seemed very much resonated with people who were in their 20s. I can really see why. It has this kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear that it was based on memories, essentially, because it does express this real 90s atmosphere. What I wondered about it now is looking back, whether it kind of expresses a sort of innocence insofar as the front cover of issue one is this monster truck covered in stars and stripes and hyperbolic Americana jingoism. And it kind of, I wondered if that to you at the time felt fringe, if that felt like a kind of specific type of easily ignored American identity versus now when it kind of seems to be certainly from the UK or from, from Europe, it seems to constitute quite a major part of the American identity. Right. Well, with that cover that you mentioned that you described with the monster truck and all the USA is number one, that, of course, I was being sarcastic and it doesn't accurately represent Buddy Bradley. It was very much making fun of this other America, whereas the moment you open up the comic book, you realize that Buddy Bradley, the main character, is much more a part living in the urban hipster world, pretty much the opposite of what he was doing on the cover. And I think everybody got that joke immediately as soon as they saw the cover. Many years later, I, as a joke to myself, I had Buddy Bradley buy a monster truck simply because he got a deal on it, you know? <laughs> but not because he wanted to enter any rallies and, and uh, yeah. drive one like a lunatic. And I just, I felt compelled to draw him in a monster truck or simply draw a monster truck because that was the height of their popularity. And even in a city like Seattle, I still would occasionally see one driving around. It'd be on regular surface streets, just some guy heading down to some monster truck rally. And I thought they were so funny looking. Just everything about them just cracked me up because they were so extreme. Other than that, as far as to answer your question about innocence, I guess the past always seems innocent, as if... You read something from the past, like those early hates, and we all, in the present, we all can't help but think, or we dwell on the things that have gotten worse, how life and how Western culture has, in many ways, has gotten worse. And you imagine that the, my characters, Buddy Bradley and his friends, they have no idea what they're in for. Like, I mean, of course, in many ways, life has gotten better and easier. And there's things that I do miss about that past, what Buddy was going through in the in the early 90s. Especially with COVID, you can't help but think, look at these people in the same room <laughs> talking to each other or at the same event. But even more than that, even before COVID happened, when we were assembling the complete hate, I still was very much aware of how people were together and interacting in FaceTime and that the internet removed a lot of that. So if you had, you could still be as paranoid as people are today and still feel as lonely as people can today. But you also were expressing all of that right in front of other people. 
if you know what I mean. You know, it was it was very interactive. That's the other thing too. Instead of people having websites or a social media page, they had zines. And what a big deal at that time people's own zines were, which it was pretty much was there. It was their Facebook and Instagram pages. It's all their thoughts and feelings were all thrown into this thing. One of the things that really struck me about it was the way that it describes a lot of these kind of political positions that, again, not to go back to it too much, but like Alex Jones in Linklater films, you have a character here, George Cecil Hampton III, who's the roommate of Buddy Bradley, who kind of manifests all of these like politically very fringe qualities. There's a sort of conspiracy theory as countercultural sort of affiliation quality. And now, of course, all of these things have moved from the margins right to the center of, of kind of American politics. That's right. That character you mentioned, George, who was Buddy's roommate, he already was living the life that almost all of us are living now. He was very much a loner, very paranoid. He had social anxiety, social anxiety disorder. And because he spent so much time by himself thinking to himself, that all manifested itself and enhanced his paranoia. I very much feel that even though I'm not one to rag on the internet, the internet's been fantastic in many ways, it reinforces that mindset with all of us, where we find ourselves in an echo chamber. And lots of times that echo chamber is just you. It's just you in this room. And everybody, since you're not looking at, let alone touching another human being, you're just looking at what somebody, even if it's somebody you know personally, what they're posting on Twitter or elsewhere, they become abstractions. You see these words and you don't agree with these words that this person posted. And they're no, because you're just seeing a bunch of words that you disagree with, the person who posted it is no longer a full-fleshed human being. They've become an abstraction. And it's much easier to demonize and dehumanize other people. But yeah, the character we're talking about, George, he was way ahead of the game <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> One of the things that I was sort of think, reflecting on as I was reading it was that underground comics today seem to, they're transgressive. You know, you have Johnny Ryan, they're kind of packed with crudity and their, their kind of confrontation in your face and you just have to open a copy of Kramer's Ergot and you'll find something kind of gross and weird. But they're kind of more fantastical than certainly than your generation of underground comics writers. You know, yours cleaves a bit more closely to the to the kind of Robert Crumb school, that earlier type. And I wondered whether there has been a kind of a breaking off, whether it maybe has become a bit harder to to write confrontational comics about everyday life that maybe don't sugarcoat things or that maybe present an uglier view of the world. And if that's part of, if moving that kind of dialogue into a, into a fantasy realm where you can cover up vulgarity with absurdity, whether that's kind of been a necessary part of responding to the political situation that we sort of find ourselves in around the world, really. Well, Johnny Ryan is very much an outlier. You know, 99.9% .9 of all comics of all types and all genres, are very much playing it safe, just like everybody's playing it safe. Everybody's being, is terrified of being demonized and having their life and reputation ruined at the drop of a hat, at the whim of somebody else. But uh, as far as where I and some of my peers, like say Dan Klaus, Chester Brown, the Hernandez brothers, we were all doing comics in the 80s. 
and in the eighties, there was there also was like this big disconnect, this big separation in American society and American culture. But there was this mainstream culture, which actually was pretty conservative with the election of Ronald Reagan and, and the UK Margaret Thatcher. There was a big rejection of, at least culturally, a lot of what was happening in the late 60s and early 70s. And people were embracing family values, as they used to call it, you know, going back to church and everybody, every other person was proclaiming themselves a Christian, you know, with a capital C. And to be outside of that made you very marginalized. So if you were interested in independent comics or music, literature, it was very hard to find that stuff. If you didn't live in a big city or a college town, it was impossible to find material like that. You know, if you lived in a typical suburb, you could not find my comic books. My comics would not have been sold anywhere. There was a brief period where I lived in the suburbs of Seattle and I would uh, bring my comics to the local comic shops and they would just give me a flat no, they wouldn't touch it for whatever reason. Maybe they personally hated it or they just were afraid they'd be run out of town. So there was very much this feeling of, with me and my peers, of us flying under the radar. We can do or say literally anything that we wanted because nobody was paying attention. It felt like literally nobody was paying attention. And if you were, it's because you were thinking and feeling like us and also like us. You were going way out of your way to find it, searching high and low to find anything that was outside of the norm. But then over time, and it's, and probably was tied in with the advent of the internet, but over time as the, like the indie comics world began to grow, there was like this new left-wing conformity, this new set of rules, which has been increasing ever since. It's just as rigidly enforced as conservative values were enforced in the 80s and in the 1950s. And all of a sudden we were on the outskirts of that. There was that brief period, I guess, in the early 90s where... I could do and say whatever I wanted, and it was popular <laughs> and well accepted. I could be as brash and as politically incorrect as I want to be, and there there wasn't – I didn't have to fear for anything and still make a good living. But uh, it's – especially for – well, let me back up a bit. I've kind of gotten used to that, and I've experienced in the past – I've always experienced some pushbacks from certain quarters with my comics, even in – I used to live in New York City, so like in New York City and, and then here in Seattle, both cities, there was a big, huge art community and most artist types always have had a very left-wing bent and I never fit neatly into anything. I'm more comfortable in that living and hanging out and talking to people in that world than I am, say, in the super conservative red state world, as we refer to it here. But uh, I was always an outlier in both worlds, and I just got very used to it. I wouldn't say it's comfortable to be that way, but I'm just used to that way. So I still don't filter myself. I feel like I'm pre-canceled. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic by saying that. But uh, but I could see being terrified if I was a young artist today. I would If I was a young person today, I would be absolutely terrified to express myself freely. It just seems like a minefield. And what about the kind of the autobiographical qualities of Buddy Bradley, where you were sort of hanging out all of your worst? I mean, if if the reader indeed knew that he was kind of in some ways your avatar, you were sort of hanging out all the worst 
parts of yourself in a way that like obviously there's lots of other kind of confessional graphic novel work but it often tends to sort of follow someone through a terribly traumatic time or be a bit weepy and it's about anxiety or it's about kind of the challenges of fitting into a world where you feel like you don't belong rather than just kind of about being a bit of an asshole and uh, and kind of coming up against people what was that like how did you kind of metabolize that sort of exposure well you know buddy bradley isn't exactly like me i've factored in a lot of uh character traits and attitudes from my friends and and incorporated things that they had done and said or been through and i made him a bit more rough around the edges than i am or than I was. But basically, what I was doing with Buddy was very much what I was just describing. How, yes, he's more comfortable living in like this major city arts community, but still was an outlier. He still couldn't pretend to go along with everything he was supposed to be going along with. He still couldn't help but uh, knee-jerk state what he really was thinking and feeling. It's like if he kept it in, he would hate himself more. You know, it's like it had to come out. And that, of course, was cathartic for me, and it was cathartic for the readers. I mean, I found out very quickly that certainly everybody who bought and read Hate felt that way as well. They also felt like they were walking this tightrope at all times. I guess that's the human condition, though, you know, to always, when should you toe the line and when should you call BS, you know what I mean? I know that you worked with sort of Robert Crumb earlier in your career, and I wondered whether you got any advice from that generation of underground comics writers and cartoonists. And I wondered whether you've had any equivalent, whether you've kind of mentored any emerging cartoonists yourself and how that advice maybe has changed. Well, to answer the first part of the question, going all the way back to when I was a kid, I always liked comics. I always entertained the notion of being a cartoonist. I never knew what kind of cartoonist I wanted to be until I discovered underground comics. And Robert Crumb's in particular were my favorites. It was him more than any other one artist that made me decide without a doubt that that's what I wanted to do. It was one, be a cartoonist, but also be one like him. You know, back then you would call it an underground cartoonist. But the way I would describe it and what I thought he did that's so remarkable is he would take the format of a comic book, you know, this 24-page pamphlet with a color cover, and pretty much use it as a blank canvas, the way a fine art painter would approach a blank canvas. And just from cover to cover, just do whatever he wanted with it. And when I saw that, I thought, this is perfect. It's something that, it's like, I've always known people who despised his work. And and I totally understand why. You know, from the moment I got really into him, I met plenty of people who said, I really hate that guy's work. And let me tell you why. So when you hear these days, well, it makes me laugh to hear people criticize Crumb because so often they sound like they're talking like they're the first person to say this. (laughs) But I've been hearing this for as long as I've been familiar with Crumb's work. But the thing is, and this is what I feel like people forget, a younger person does not know this, but what I was talking about with seeing Robert Crumb's work and seeing him taking a comic book and doing whatever he wanted from cover to cover, that inspired everybody that came afterwards. And of course, there are a lot of people most people who didn't want to do comics like him at all, but they still are 
expressing themselves in an unfiltered way from cover to cover. The whole thing is theirs. The whole book is theirs to do with as they choose. And that started with Robert Crumb more than any other person that started with him. He didn't just open a door. He just blew the whole wall off the side of the house and everybody came pouring through. So, uh, yes, that's how he inspired me. And working with him was great. His advice was... You know, whenever I was struggling, his advice most consistently was just be true to yourself. You never know what exactly will sell, what will work, what will click. But trying to guess it, doing something that doesn't come naturally to you just because you think or hope this is what people will like. He says, chances are it won't be what people like. The only guarantee is what you like. So just do exactly what you want to do, and at least you'll be happy with it. Even if the rest of the world hates it, you'll always be very happy with it, very proud of it. And that wound up being true. The more, over time, the more I stayed true to myself, ironically, or perhaps not ironically, the better I did career-wise. So in, in a sense, both financially and artistically, that was great advice. As far as inspiring younger artists, I really can't, it's hard for me to pinpoint anybody or having a conversation like this. I would probably would just, if somebody asked, I would just repeat what someone like Robert Crumb said to me, you know, which is just stay true to yourself as best as you can. Just always stay true to yourself and do exactly what you want to do. Otherwise, what's the point? Then you're not expressing yourself. Recently, I read an interview with Alan Moore, who obviously wrote Watchmen and is rather than a cartoonist, is a is a writer, and he kind of blamed, he, he singled out the emergence of this sort of genre of graphic novels, of these kind of highbrow, more involved narratives told over many pages as kind of a problem in, um, in wider culture, because he said that cartoons are meant to be, well, they're for kids or they're fun, right? There was the kind of takeaway that they shouldn't be too ponderous, that they're not meant to be this kind of high art form. And that what what happens if you kind of start treating them as such is that suddenly you get a cinema that, you know, can't open because Marvel isn't releasing its latest blockbuster and that's all anyone wants to go and see anymore. And not only that, but that's the only type of narrative that people are ingesting. And it's kind of simplified, right? It's binary, it's good and bad and good always wins. And it's pretty loose in storytelling. It's generally just spectacle, strung after spectacle. And I wondered whether you thought that cartoons have maybe started to be taken too seriously, if maybe there should be a, a lightness to them, or a kind of insolence to them that that we don't see so much anymore. Well, it sounds like you, and I guess by extension, Alan Moore, were talking about mainstream comics. Well, because that's the movies you're talking about are superhero, all the superhero stuff. And I would agree with all of that to some extent. And there was, amongst certain cartoonists I know, like first and foremost, Art Spiegelman, Back in the day, he really wanted, he was on a mission to get comics taken seriously, you know, by institutions, by colleges, universities, the fine art world, to get everybody to look at it as like not being just for kids or for just for stupid adults. And at that time, when he was on that mission, I had a negative knee jerk reaction to it. Not that I wanted to just keep comics for kids. The comics I were doing were for myself, but I also really enjoyed being willfully stupid. As I was saying before, uh, I enjoyed flying below the radar. 
You know, I like being gutter trash. I didn't want, I was very self-conscious about seeing my own comics published in book form, let alone hardcover. Like this complete hate thing is this big slip cover, <laughs> super expensive thing. I liked it being toilet reading. I liked people using it as a coaster and rolling their joints on it. That's the type of material I want. I wanted to create ephemera, just something that you're vaguely aware of, like a candy wrapper. Interestingly, like now Spiegelman actually sort of agrees with me. He said, I was on this mission to get comics taken seriously. I succeeded. But he says, I miss those days too. I also miss flying under the... Now it's like as if it, they're taken too seriously. There's a new set of expectations that we didn't have to suffer under in the past. It feels like it's missing, that you can't be completely wacky and ridiculous and reckless and get away with it. But... Ideally, I want, I like both. If you want to do something totally pompous or something totally serious and want to be taken serious, that's totally fine. But I also like seeing wacky, crazy garbage too. You know, like Johnny Ryan, who doesn't seem to be doing comics so much anymore. He just posts really horrible, offensive drawings on social media. <laughs> My thanks to Peter Bagg there. And The Complete Hate, collecting all 30 issues from 1990 to 1998, is available from Fantagraphics now. It's truly a beautiful collection. I've been Augustin Machilari. This interview was edited by Jack Dewars. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>